It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this week's Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark with your weekly serving of politics. People call her the zombie prime minister. She's kind of got this undead quality where she just absorbs body blow after body blow. Every single one you think in normal political times would write her off, yet somehow she endures and she's still there. And culture. As the film goes on, you realise that their own thoughtlessness and bad decisions has led them down a pretty dark path in life. In this broadcast, we hear from Timothy Garton Ash, the Oxford historian, on his hopes for the ailing European project, and also from the economist George Magnus on China. Whereas the West is fraught with problems, the new superpower in the East is surging ahead. Or is it? Might trouble be lurking in Beijing? None of these domestic issues are necessarily unique to China, but they're all problems for China with Chinese characteristics. We'll have plenty more of that later in the broadcast, but first as ever, I'm here in the studio with Samir Rahim, our culture editor and Alex, our political correspondent. First, Samir, uh, I gather you've been watching some Japanese cinema this week. I have indeed. Um, Shoplifters, um, directed by Hirokazu Koreeda, a wonderful Japanese uh, filmmaker, won the Palm Door earlier this year. What makes it unusual is that it shows a slightly seamier side to Japan than the one that we're perhaps used to seeing. It deals with a very poor family living in a tiny box room. It's an unusual family because um, no one is actually related in this family. They're a sort of gathering of um, layabouts, wastrels, but sort of quite charming in their own way. And as the title indicates, they make a living by shoplifting or um, one of the daughters um, works in the sex industry, another one of the grandmothers scrapes money by uh, fooling her uh, her relatives into giving her some. So it's it's caused a lot of controversy in Japan itself, where it's been taken as being a sort of critique of Shinzo Abe's uh, economic policies. And in fact, earlier this year, when the film did win the Palm d'Or, Abe didn't congratulate the filmmaker as he would have been expected to do. There's a scene in which uh, two characters have to share a job in a laundry, um, and job sharing is one of the things that Abe is very, very keen on. Um, and this goes terribly wrong for various for various reasons. Um, some people have compared it to I, Daniel Blake, which also won the Palm d'Or two years ago, and which was also a sort of social critique of poverty Ken Loach. in Britain, the Ken Loach, the Ken Loach film. Um, and then Ian Duncan Smith and various people got into a uh, political debate with him over that. It's actually a very different kind of film, though, because with I, Daniel Blake, you're never unsure, let's say, what Ken Loach wants you to think. You know, there are sort of romantic and heroic um, individuals, 
working class individuals fighting against a state system that is uh, inevitably biased against them. With shoplifters, it's sort of almost the opposite. You, you, you start by being charmed by these characters. You know, they're almost sort of Fagin-like, but just a very inefficient version of Fagin mm. and his gang. But as, it, as, the, as the film goes on, you realise that their own thoughtlessness and bad decisions has led them down a pretty dark path in life. Um, they rescue a child from another family um, who they think is being abused, but in fact they effectively abduct her. And that mm. is sort of how, how the plot unfolds. It's a, it's a wonderfully sensitive film, and it also really treats people as they are in life, in that they are both constrained by circumstances, thoughtless and make bad decisions, but yet you can't help feeling completely sympathetic towards them, even right towards the denouement. So you're giving it a good sell there. Do you watch much in the way of Japanese um, films or is this a, a new thing for you? Uh, but we can do it. This film is in the sort of tradition of um, Ozu and sort of Japanese social realism. There's definitely a, there's definitely a sort of a link between those um, those two directors. This is actually the first uh, film by Kori Edo that, I, that I've watched, but I'm certainly going to be watching more of them. And um, just in terms of what it tells you about Japan now... Um, we who follow economics more than cinema kind of have the idea that Japan started on this long, everlasting kind of sluggish semi-slump that we seem to be in in the West now as well. But they started in, I don't know, 1990 or something. But the difference between um, them and us until recently, people used to say, is they'd had all this absent growth and stagnant um wages and all the rest of it but they didn't seem to have lots of people on the streets was your sense watching this that actually people like me who are relying on these stylized facts are just hopelessly out of date now and that that japan really is hurting in the same way that new york or manchester in the uk are the director's talked about how he based a lot of the uh, stories on ones that he'd heard and ones that he'd researched uh, and looked into. It's about family abuse as well as poverty, and it's about social problems that really exist in any kind of society. The sort of really interesting part of it is that he's talking about the idea of the family. Um, and in this family, no one is actually related, but they have a sort of sense of family unity. They do have a sense of sort of honour among thieves. So in a way, it's a sort of comment on the way that uh, sort of the traditional Japanese family is being sort of affected and perhaps even sort of challenged by um, inequality and uh, long working hours and difficult conditions. Sounds very much worth seeing. Um, Alex, you've got your own show that you're watching. As we speak, it is, what, one week out now from uh, the big vote, the meaningful vote, as it's been billed now for months and months. Um, how do you think it's all looking? I mean, the main headline uh, this week so far has been uh, a preliminary opinion uh, by the Advocate General from the European Court of Justice about whether Britain has the right to unilaterally revoke Article 50. Uh, it <laughs> quickly gets quite technical. The basic question is whether we can decide off our own bat to withdraw the notice that we sent in to start the Brexit process. Um, and it's been generating a huge amount of interest. In my view, it's not actually that interesting a case. Um, it's not a ruling by the European Court, despite some misleading headlines. It's it's uh, an opinion by the Advocate General. Now, in practice, 
the court tends to follow that opinion, but it doesn't always. And uh, I, I gather that this is the kind of instance where where maybe there'd be a divergence. Is the the front page of uh, George Osborne's Evening Standard is UK can cancel Brexit on its own or something like that um, today? So people are running with it. Do you know when we'll actually get the ruling then? Pretty soon. Um, the the thing to emphasise is that this emphatically isn't a case about just whether we can revoke Article 50 full stop. It's about whether we can unilaterally revoke it. Mm. In my in my opinion, that, that actually makes it quite a bit less interesting um, <laughs> because actually <laughs> European leaders have always said, I think, that if we wanted to cancel the Article 50 notice and stay in after all, they'd welcome that. Donald Tusk is just one of several kind of high-powered European figures to, to, to say something along those lines. Um, actually, I imagine if we did want to stay and call the whole thing off, they'd I'm not sure they'd be delighted to have us back, but I imagine that they, they, they'd accept us back into the fold. Always make a crisis go away if you can, I guess, is the mood. Well, let's widen out for a moment into that bigger European picture, um, which we can do with Timothy Garton Ash, who we heard from um, just a bit earlier. Europe faces its fair share of problems at the moment, um, well away from Brexit. One reason they might want it to go away. Um, and uh, there's political instability just now, of course, in France. We've got Angela Merkel leaving. So, um, Timothy sees a way that it could nonetheless stabilise. And as you will hear, everything has to start here in Westminster. The first thing that has to happen is for Theresa May to lose the meaningful vote on her deal. Then I suspect, although our listeners may already be wiser, she'll go back and try and get a slightly tweaked political declaration, try a second vote. If that goes down then the choice becomes no deal or a second referendum, and we have to go for a second referendum, whereupon, without wanting to get too much into the weeds, Europe would extend Article 50 and we'd have that chance. Then the other pieces in the picture are Germany coming right, Poland coming right, the European elections producing um, a pro-reform coalition. All of these things could be in place a year from now. So if we come back and have a talk again <laughs> in uh, autumn next year, another Europe is possible. I want to be clear. I don't think it's probable. I don't think it's probable. I, th I, think, I think things may continue to go badly wrong. I think we may continue to witness European disintegration. But it's possible, and it still a lot still depends on us. Fascinating stuff from Timothy Garton-Ash there, Alex. Um, you heard what he said um, for his grand plan for Europe to work. First of all, Theresa May needs to lose her meaningful vote, which is on December the 11th. So does that feel likely? Uh, I think it's near guaranteed that she's going to lose lose it at the first try. The interesting question in my mind is whether she has another go at it after Christmas um, and whether it could squeak through then. It will be interesting to see whether there are some MPs who are kind of virtue signalling with their first vote to show their constituents, uh, the media, whoever, the media cheerleaders, um, that they don't like the deal. But actually, when it comes back with the most ruthless whipping oper operation in history, um, with the uncertainty crushing down and, and the cliff edge precipice drawing nearer, whether actually they change their minds and go with the government uh, the second time around. So, Theresa may, in your opinion, stagger into 2019 as some kind of a 
Rasputin-like prime minister that you just can't keep down. Yeah, I mean, she it's weird, isn't it? She's almost got this... Uh, people call her the zombie prime minister. She's kind of got this undead quality where she just absorbs body blow after body blow. Every single one you'd think in normal political times would write her off. Um, yet somehow she endures and she's still there. Thanks very much, um, Alex. And thanks also to Samir. And now we go over to this week's main interview. My name is Jay Elwes, and I'm here with George Magnus, who is an associate of the China Centre at Oxford University and formerly the chief economist at UBS. He's here today to discuss his latest book, which is Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy. And that's published by Yale. And George uh, is delivering in that book a fairly sobering message on China. Um, It's, as we know, been the global economic story of the last 10, 20 years with double-digit GDP growth and the sudden springing up of multi-million people, cities and huge military and international ambitions. But be careful, says George. All is not necessarily well because there are dangers out there. And this is what he outlines in his new book. Um... George, um, it's a a really intriguing, engaging book um, that really takes you inside China and Chinese politics. And bestriding Chinese politics is this really extraordinary figure of Xi Jinping. He's everywhere in the book. He's even in its title. He's on the front cover. He's someone who sought the international limelight at Davos in 2017. He gave that speech that had everybody uh, talking and felt was so remarkable. He's now president for life, effectively, as you make clear in the book. But who is Xi Jinping? Well, he's a he's a he's what they call a princeling. So he's the uh, the progeny of um, uh, a father in this particular case. Uh, who was uh, a revolutionary with um, uh, Mao Zedong, and they basically fought um, the nationalists and the Japanese, and basically then established the People's Republic in um, 1949. And um, and so he he does come. He is you know by Chinese standards, he is a bit uh, he's a bit of an aristocrat in that way. He's he's got pedigree, and he's got um, obviously family form, um, which is uh, you know. Which counts for a lot in China, um, and um, he was um, a governor, uh, a, pro- a provincial governor, and uh, it, we're having grown up through the party, um, and then he um, uh, was uh, a senior ad- administrator, and um, he was uh, a vice premier, I think, um, or vice president um, before two thousand and twelve, um, and. Uh, yeah, so he he eventually was chosen as as the chosen one to become president. Um, but it was um, in two thousand and eleven, two thousand and twelve, when uh, when it wasn't clear that he was going to actually be the president. Um, there was uh, quite a lot of factional infighting going on in the party, and um, actually, even two weeks before the eighteenth Congress of the Communist Party in uh, at the end of uh, two thousand and twelve. He disappeared for two weeks, and nobody really knew why. To this day, nobody really knows, and um, it's speculated that he it was it was room, the, the official narrative was that he had bad back. Um, nobody really believes that, but uh, it's speculated that there was a huge power struggle going on uh, within the party, and that he uh, disappeared to effectively secure 
the um, support and cooperation of the PLA, the uh, People's Liberation Army, uh, the internal security apparatus and the senior echelons of the party um, uh, in a pact in which he would become president and he would um, basically do the things that he's been doing since 2012. It's quite a, 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 a dark story uh, in, in many ways. Um, but what we can say, I mean, there's a lot there that we don't know, but what we can say is that he really is a party man through and through, isn't he? He is a party man through and through. And in fact, um, I came across a speech that he made <clears throat> in the spring of 2012. So this is before... Um, uh, before actually the the celebrated um, uh, dismissal and then arrest of Bo Xilai, who was the governor of Chongqing uh, province, um, on charges of corruption and bringing the party into disrepute. And is he is uh, Bo Xilai still in under house he, arrest? He's still incarcerated. Yeah, he's under house arrest, effectively. Yeah. Um, but um, but this was a speech which was uh, given by Xi Jinping to the party school in uh, the capital, in which, um, I mean, if you wanted to see writing on the wall, you know, it was right here, because he spoke to the to the, the cadres or the, the, the new kind of officials who were being uh, going through the school about uh, a very Leninist concept, which is the concept of party purity, and how it's imperative for party members to um, forego personal gain and aggrandizement and to work for uh, the party and for the to be responsive to the citizenry and um, you know to, to be compliant and do all the right things and do what you're told kind of thing uh, because the party is the you know foremost institution in China and so on uh, so this was kind of an early warning really um, of his um, his very robust uh, you know party credentials I think so he he's got enormous power he's effectively president for life as you mentioned in the book he is effectively in charge of the armed forces as well a combination which gives him power that I don't think anybody in modern Chinese history has had before? Uh, well, he, um, I mean, as the head of the Communist Party and of the Central Military Commission, neither of these two positions are subject to term limits. So, in fact, provided he uh, continues to enjoy the support of the Communist Party, he would have these positions for a very long time uh, until he either resigned from them or, you know, he kind of, uh, they were passed to somebody else. But of course, what happened in the spring of 2018 at the National People's Congress, which is the Chinese, the annual Chinese parliamentary session, um, is that the uh, term limits for the president were abandoned. So he was already very powerful and he could have retired to become a dustman and he'd still be very powerful because of um, uh, because his thought um, has now been, or his thinking and his philosophy has now been enshrined in the parties and the state's constitution. Um, but he now has the option of obviously staying on beyond 2022 and perhaps if he, if he so chose and if the party enjoyed his... Um, uh, his leadership, uh, or for as long as he enjoys their confidence and vice versa, um, yeah, he he could stay as president for a, an awfully long time. And uh, he he will feel well pleased, I'm sure, with the way he's got the, po the political bit sewn up. But uh, as you set out in your book, he faces some very serious challenges indeed. Um, and though you 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 are you are uh, nuanced in your analysis, but your analysis is that there are four big problems that he faces: concerned with debt, the currency, 
uh, the changing demography of China, and then something which is the middle income trap, which I guess that we can come to later. So this is a, this is not a small collection of ideas and theories, but maybe if we could start with the debt trap, what what exactly uh, is is Xi facing there? Yeah, I mean, I I should say that none of these issues, these domestic issues, there are external issues which we perhaps will come on to, which are have to do with trade and the Belt and Road, but. None of these domestic issues are necessarily unique to China, but they're all problems for China with Chinese characteristics, which is a phrase they use often in their narrative. Um, and and they're, they're, the, they're, they're all happening for Xi Jinping at around about the same time. So it's, um, it's the cumulative consequences of having to deal with enormous problems that have built up actually in quite a short period of time. So the debt trap really is about the fact that um, China's debt has pretty much as a share of its national income has more than tripled in 10 years. And are you talking about Mm. government borrowing or people with credit cards or or everything? This is total debt. So this is the the central government, local and provincial governments, which are really important in China. They are the agents really of economic, uh, they they deliver economic growth. Um, Households, uh, companies, both private and uh, state-owned enterprises, and uh, the banking system. So the the debt to GDP is now at the end of last year, it, rose, it had risen to about 330%. It's probably more than that now. We, we don't know whether there's a magic number at which everything starts to go pear-shaped, but the speed with which it's grown and the characteristics of China's debt and the way it's funded um, do give grounds for concern. And we're talking about many tens of trillions of dollars worth of debt. Yeah, so this is um, 330% of GDP is going to be roughly... Um, well, China's GDP in dollar terms is probably about 11 or 12 trillion dollars. So, yeah, it's getting on for sort of 40 or 50 trillion dollars. And what is the problem with all of this debt? I mean, we know that debt can simply sit there. Uh, Britain's got its own debt uh, pile. Um, what's the problem with this debt pile being so large? Uh, well, there, there are there are two big problems. The, the first is uh, is the kind of problem that we experienced in Britain and indeed in the Western world in 2007-2008, which is when the banks that actually have balance sheets, in other words, they've made loans and they've, they've borrowed money to fund those loans, when the balance sheets of the banking system get so stretched that when... Uh, People withdraw their deposits or, you know, banks become illiquid and asset prices, housing prices, for example, start to drop. Then suddenly you have a huge problem in the financial system and the banks have to be bailed out or you have an economic collapse. I don't think that's going to happen in China because all the banks, the main banks are state owned. No major institutions will be allowed to go bust. The other problem that you get with a big debt crisis or a big debt problem is somebody eventually has to pay for the debt, particularly the misallocated debt that's uncommercial. And, um, and then what happens is that you basically have – everybody has to pay for it somehow. It normally, it manifests itself as a protracted period of low growth like we've had for the last 10 years. And I don't think China will be spared. They can do things that we can't do, 
uh, like uh, keep they don't have to recognize bad debts in the way that we do because they don't have the rule of law they don't have accounting systems like we do they can evergreen the loans for a little while so that they can pretend that nothing's uh, uh, remiss uh, but sooner or later it'll come to pass and, uh, and I think we're getting kind of close-ish to that point. The second one of the threats you identify is the renminbi trap, the renminbi China's currency. What's What's the issue there? Well, the issue there is because China would like to have a stable currency and they would like it to be uh, more widely used in the international monetary system because they don't really like the the dollars, US dollars dominance of the of that system. The problem with that is the renminbi can't really remain stable because there's too much domestic um, renminbi liquidity. This is related to the debt problem. So if they actually successfully address the debt problem, then economic growth will slow down and um, uh, probably the renminbi will depreciate. If they don't address the problem, it might depreciate anyway because uh, financial instability. And now we've got the trade issue going on as well, which is also an aggravation. So the likelihood is that the renminbi, which is now reaching a, uh, what the markets believe to be a fairly critical level of around seven to the US dollar, um, that's probably going to give in the not too distant future. And um, yeah, so it probably will continue to depreciate and it probably won't become as wide. It is being more widely used as a transaction vehicle uh, and to denominate, um, you know, transactions in securities and so on. But actually, I don't think the renminbi will be worth um, not worth. I don't think it'll be used even as much as sterling or the Swiss franc is in you know ten or fifteen years, because the Chinese have capital controls, so they're very reticent about people owning their currency. So there's a nuance here. You know, they want it to be more widely used, but they don't really like to lose control. Mm. Um, and the <laughs> third of the problems that you cite is the aging trap. That's when you get too many old people and not enough young people to meet the needs of an aging population. Precisely. And the issue there with China is, again, not that it's unique, because a lot of us in the world have this issue, but it's happening incredibly quickly, um, partly due to the family policies that were introduced in the 1970s. Um, and that was before the one-child policy, which has now been abandoned. Um, but uh, so what's happening really is that the, the age structure in China, in other words, getting older, um, is going to happen in, in, in the next 22 years. It'll happen faster than we experienced in the West over the last 60 to 70 years. And they have much lower income per capita. So the risk of pensioner poverty and not having a big enough social security system for pensions and health care, for example, um, that's, that's pretty real for China. And then the fourth yeah. one is the middle income trap. Yeah, so this is a little bit kind of nerdy. But basically, it's about uh, an, well, an empirical observation that we you know, economists have made about countries over the last 60 or 70 years is that not many poor countries have succeeded. Uh, well, let me put it this way. Many poor countries have succeeded in growing out of poverty and actually becoming so-called middle-income countries. But only a handful or two handfuls basically have succeeded in growing out of middle-income trap, middle-income status to become rich or like uh, income per head of you know forty fifty thousand dollars as as we have in in the UK and, and Europe and the US and so on, 
And um, the the key to doing this, I think, is about um, it's really about having very efficient and robust institutions, competitive regulatory environment, the rule of law um, that encourage you know innovation and technical progress, and good educational institutions, and you know great universities and science parks and so on. So China has some of this. Certainly it doesn't have a lot of it uh, when it comes to some of the institutions that we think in the West are important. It's kind of a bit churlish to say that China will not succeed in breaking out of the middle income trap um, because, um, uh, you know, they may be special. No, But the empirical evidence suggests that only a minority actually do succeed and none of them have been authoritarian countries. mentioned in the book that you've been going to China since uh, 1993. So um, you've seen an extraordinary period of transformation in that country. But what is it that first took you to China? Well, at the time, I was working for um, a UK merchant bank that doesn't exist anymore called SG Warburg. And um, we were, uh, I was part of a kind of a team that went to China to try to talk to uh, the People's Bank of China, which is the central bank, about doing business with us, basically. We knew that they had a growing number of, of foreign exchange reserves. I mean, that wasn't really a secret. Um, and we, like lots of other banks at the time, wanted to the People's Bank of China to give us their foreign exchange business. So we went to talk to them about what was going on in the West and in the United States. And we obviously didn't, you know, at that stage, you know, China was a bit of a rounding error for most people um, in terms of, you know, economic coverage. Um so, yeah, so they would ask us questions about, you know, the dollar and the U.S. Treasury market and the gilt market and so on and so forth. So that was the original uh, purpose of my my first visits to China, yeah. Mm. And what you say in the book, which is um, which is a very good corrective to many of the narratives that we, we read about China at the moment, um, you point out that people are mistaken in talking about China's emergence in the period that you describe. In fact, what we should be thinking about really is a re-emergence. China was formerly an enormous and dominant economy. Um, we should be less surprised that it is becoming one again. Yes, I think it's, um, there's, it's a lovely narrative, uh, actually, in, in a way, um, which is how China effectively did rule the world uh, such as it was, in, or the world economy such as it was, for an awfully long time, and probably certainly through the early part of you know the um, the first century, and then through the maybe the twelfth or thirteenth, fourteenth century. I mean, there is a bit of a dispute uh, between academicians now as to when China peaked in terms of its its share of world output or world income. Um, it was often thought, well, it used to be thought, actually, that it was probably sometime around the mid-18th mid century. And then some researchers, you know, have basically redone numbers and they think it might have been a, a little bit earlier. But certainly there's no dispute that China's relative position uh, to Europe, for example, did begin to decline um, probably uh, with the early part of the Industrial Revolution. And then in absolute terms, China just fell away. And it fell away all the all the way down through, uh, you know, the twentieth century to about 1950, 1955. The Belt and Road Initiative uh, is something that you also talk about in your book, um, and it's r- r- remarkable for its scale. It's a multi-trillion-dollar endeavor. 
one of the things it does is it's it's it seeks to re uh, re-explore the trade routes of the past um and is trying to connect with this sort of atavist, atavistic notion of a kind of great china that that once existed um do you think that the uh, i mean do you think these plans stack up yeah it's a good question you know and, and and it is you're quite right i mean it is very much part of the the narrative of what xi jinping calls the chinese dream of the great rejuvenation of the chinese people um so the chinese are not you know they're not short of phraseology and and kind of mantras and and slogans that they like uh, people to kind of rally around and this idea that you know we were once a great nation or great civilization um that that did good for the world i mean that's the narrative um and then we kind of fell away uh, during you know a period of what they call the century of humiliation when the brits and the uh, the you know russians and the japanese and uncle tom cobbley you know kind of went out to china and suppressed them or you know took their their ports and their um uh, uh, commercial advantages away um so they uh, now you know believe that the belt and road which is actually xi jinping's signature foreign policy in effect is a way of kind of recreating this idea of um you know china's beneficent w- role in the world by kind of um becoming influential in places you know far afield so in fact the belt and the road actually aren't what you think they are the road is actually uh the, the maritime routes to the mediterranean and to the rest of the world and the belt actually is the the overland routes um which were the original which was the original silk road um which 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 were caravan trails uh, that you know traded you know porcelain and you know precious metals and iron and so on for um uh silver and other things that went the other way so the um so the the belt and road really is a sort of a it's a romantic incarnation of uh an old system in which china was prominent in the world system yeah there's a bit of a causality question though that this throws up in my mind I, I, china went through a, a massive phase of overinvestment building roads but that led nowhere building massive amounts of apartment blocks that nobody wanted to live in I mean, is is there is it necessarily the case that if these enormous maritime routes and overland roads are are actually put there, that there'll be anything to ship along them? Well, this is the kind of um, this is a, it is a bone of contention, right? So it's I mean, it would obviously it would be churlish if we assumed that there were countries that did not welcome the Chinese financing of dams, ports high-speed rail airports and all manner of infrastructure which is which is what they're trying to do um and to be sure you know many countries have welcomed um chinese capital but at the same time there is a growing concern actually that um the chinese are um should we say taking advantage of recipient countries that are recipients of the financing so um when mahathir mohammed was recently elected as re-elected as prime minister of malaysia one of the first things he did was actually is to shut down two major projects that the chinese had financed um a power project and the uh, the, the east asia rail link um <clears throat> the pakistanis who are actually they are they are core they are central to the whole belt and road initiative um uh, imran khan recently uh, said that um 
Chinese involvement in a number of projects would have to be reviewed. In um, Indonesia, a presidential candidate uh, for the election isn't until 2019, but he said that if he's elected, he would review uh, Chinese uh, financing. So we're getting more and more of these examples where countries are basically saying, hang on a minute, you know, we're paying too much. You know, the accounting isn't really works in our favor at all. We're having to borrow far too much money. So it's, you know, becoming impossible for us to pay you back. And in one case in Sri Lanka, the port that the Chinese, major port in, near Colombo, which the um, Chinese helped to finance, couldn't afford to repay its debts. And the lease provided for uh, the Chinese to the Chinese construction company to take it over for 99 years, which is exactly the same what happened to Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, so um, there is a rising, I, can, I think, kind of sense of we're not sure that this is really in our interests kind of view from a, a large number of countries, actually. It's pretty clear that China is endeavouring to create for itself a sphere of influence, which is something that Soviet Russia had, which is what the United States still has. Um, and I, I suppose that part of that cavilling by different governments and administrations is down to an unwillingness to be part of that sphere of influence. I, I can see, though, that the biggest relationship is not with any of the countries just mentioned. It is with the United States. I mean, that really is going to be the relationship that defines the coming decade, the coming potentially the coming century. Um, Xi Jinping and Donald Trump have... Uh, well, Donald Trump has decided that he wants a trade war with China, it seems. Um, it, it, it seems in some parts of the book that you're not entirely unsympathetic towards some of what Trump has said in that regard. But uh, I suppose the question is, does the United States have the, uh, the uh, capacity to inflict real damage on China? And if it does, what would that presage? Well, I think uh, in the first place, I mean, I think uh, in contrast to what, you know, we may have heard from the president's lips, President Trump, that is, um, I mean, I don't think there are any winners in a trade war. Uh, I think everybody loses because people, citizens, companies, you know, we all end up having to pay higher prices for things that previously cost less because of the, because the tariffs basically get passed on to, to consumers. <clears throat> And um, if it's true that kind of, you know, that trade makes the world go round, um, to coin a phrase, then um, then if you impede that trade and you uh, restrict countries or restrict your own producers and other people's producers from doing things that they're good at, then you end up in a much less efficient and much more kind of subdued uh, economic environment. So it's it's not good for anybody. So the idea of a trade war is obviously is to inflict more damage on your opponents than they do on you. And um, I actually think, I mean, the, the, the consensus is really that the Chinese are playing the long game and they'll win. And, you know, you can't trust Trump and, you know, he's very volatile and so on. Some of these things, of course, quite true. But I think that um, in this particular case, I do think that <clears throat> President Trump has He's done what a lot of people had urged on previous um, U.S. presidents, including President Obama, uh, which is to call them out because the the idea that China is still a developing country um, that you know can get away with having special policies and state subsidies and and you know artificial aids to basically boost their competitive power, the idea that that is still true when it's China has become an adversary 
in many ways, I think is something which we do have to take seriously. And, you know, and it's not just the Americans. I mean, in this country, I mean, Theresa May and the British government have become much more uh, watchful now about Chinese acquisition of technology, which we're pretty good at and have a lot of small firms that would ideally suit um, being takeover targets for Chinese companies. Um, in Germany and France, Brussels, um, also becoming much more um, uh, scrutinizing much more carefully uh, the activities of Chinese companies in particular sectors. So the the idea that we are in an adversarial relationship with China, which is for the longer term, not just for a few months, and that um, we want to bring pressure to bear on China to um, to change some of its policy. In principle, I think that's correct. Now, how you do it is really a moot point. Um, the president, President Trump, has chosen to do it through punitive tariffs, which the Chinese are retaliating, retaliating against. It's not necessarily that tariffs are the right way to do this, um, but that's kind of where we are at the moment, and I think it's regrettable, actually. George Magnus, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. That was George Magnus speaking to my colleague Jay Elwes, and to read more by George on China, economics and finance, visit our website at prospectmagazine.co.uk where you can find all kinds of great stuff on domestic politics, global affairs as well as the arts, culture, science and more. You can also read Timothy Garton Ash's essay for us on the future of Europe which is in our December issue and that's still in the shops now so be sure to grab a copy while you can. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Samir Rahim and Alex Dean here in the studio. The producer of this broadcast was Jay Elwes. Thanks so much for listening and please do go to iTunes where you can rate and review this podcast which really does help us to find other listeners and to help them find us. Be sure to join us again next week for the Prospects podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.